Hey, Sages Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us, whether you're watching this live right now, on demand, or on a podcast, wherever you might be, even gathering in one of our spaces. We're so glad that you're joining us today. And I want to welcome you also to our third mini-series out of the book of Exodus in our ministry year. So I want to do something one last time. I shared these exact words in September 2020. Do you even remember that? And then in January 2021, and now I want to share it one more time. One of my rules uh, here in this church is to inquire of the Lord to see if there is something He specifically wants us to hear in this season in the life of our church. So I sat before God in the period of November 2019 through January 2020. And as I listened to the Lord, very clearly he spoke, which was amazing. First thing he said is this, I want you to teach through 2 Timothy, which is all about perseverance in dangerous and uncertain times. Then he said, I want you to preach on a book you've never touched before, Philemon, which is all about how Jesus as king changes the conversation about money and race and church. Then he said, I want you to go back to the Psalms again and teach Sanctus Church to intercede, to channel their sadness and anger into prayer so the world can be changed again. And lastly, he said, I want you to land in the book of Exodus, but not the whole book because it's large. But he said three mini points. He said, preach on why impossibility is no issue for me. That's the first thing. And then he said, I, I want you, second of all, to preach on why I, God, sustain people on a journey, in the journey to a new place. And lastly, teach the people how to worship me in holiness. And clear as day, I wrote this down, the phrases I was given by the Holy Spirit is right worship, in other words, pro appropriate worship, and portable worship. Now, I said this in September, and I said this in January. Let me do it again. Wow, wow, wow. You're like, why is the wow? Let me tell you. All of this was given to our church pre-COVID. So God knew what we needed to hear. God knew COVID-19 was coming. God knew there would be a global moment. God knew what was going to happen culturally, racially, politically. And so God gave us the exact series that we needed to talk about unity and race and all of it. God was speaking and is speaking. So I want to welcome you to this third mini-series out of Exodus. And God's timing is perfect. When I was given this, I didn't know we were going to be in a third lockdown as we are now today. But I want to invite you, all of us, to turn back to the story of Exodus. Exodus actually 40 this time. Because God is about to speak. Have you prepared yourself? God is about to encourage. Have you prepared yourself? God is about to reorient us. Have you prepared yourself today? Okay. We're in the wilderness with the Jewish people. They're on their way to the promised land. And then God does something. God commanded and outlined to Moses that something needed to be built to be used when they were on the move. Israel was helped in worship by building this portable sanctuary, a tent, a portable shrine, a movable worship structure, which some of you know the name of it. It's called a tabernacle. Now, what's shocking and amazing is one-third of the book of Exodus, and Exodus is a big book, is all about God instructing Moses on how to build the structure and use the structure. Now, what's going to be even more interesting and shocking later is we find out that this is a physical copy down here, a shadow of what actually the environment where God lives in the heavenlies. Now, let's begin here. We were reminded of this both times in January and September. God's physical presence was among the people at this moment. 
In Exodus uh, 13.21, reread this. By day, the Lord went ahead of his people in the pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And at night, in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So God's people literally can see the God they're worshiping among them, in front of them, leading them. But then God goes farther. After chapters and chapters of outlining what God wanted to do and all tons of work on this tabernacle, it was time to set it up. And we arrive at Exodus 40. Then God said to Moses, Set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. Okay, so let's ask this question. What is this thing? Well, it's basically a large, a large tent. And notice, two terms are used to talk about this structure. It points to function and to use. First, it's called tabernacle. Well, what does tabernacle mean? Well, it literally reads abiding or dwelling. This is the place where God dwells or is present among his people. But it's not just about presence. I mean, think about this. Maybe this is your experience. Lots of us have people maybe in our lives. They're around us, but we're not in relationship with them. In other words, you can be present with someone, but it can be cold. You can be present with someone and not in relationship. You can be present with someone and not in community. But see, God isn't just present among his people, but still distant and cold and non-relational. That's why this is also called the tent of meeting. This is where God not only is present, but he speaks to Moses who speaks to his people. This is relationship. God dwells here and God meets here. Second of all, God says, I want you to set it up on the first day of the month. Now, this is a side note, but important. This is two weeks short of one year after they left Egypt. So this is two weeks before the celebration of Passover. This is connected to their, the Jewish New Year celebration. Now, I never caught this until I really sat with this. And it's going to matter for us. It said, set it up on the first day, which implies you can set it up in one day and break it down in one day. The point is this encounter environment is portable and it is easily taken down and set up. They had to tear it down if God said we're moving or keep it up while God said we're staying. So you've got presence. Write this down if you're taking notes. Presence. You've got relationship and portability all happening at once. Now, what I, want, what, what I want you to do is I'm going to walk with you from the very inside of this structure all the way to the outside. So this starts at the very center of this thing, which is later in the temple called the Holy of Holies. God says to Moses, verse 3, place the Ark of Testimony in it and shield the Ark with a curtain. Now, you might know the Ark of Testimony by another name. It's the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this chest or box was made from Acadia wood and overlaid with gold. There were two large angels on each side of the top of the box, and their wings spread over the, the top cover. Now, why are there angels on this chest? Well, one, God is the king of angels. Then you ask, well, what type of angels are they? Well, we see this later in 1 Samuel 4.4. It says, so the people went, so the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who's enthroned between the cherubim. Now, the last time we saw this type of angel mentioned in the Old Testament, it's all the way back at Eden. 
it's when God actually removes humanity from Eden. It says in Genesis 4.24, so God drove the man out at the east of the garden, uh, at the east of the garden of Eden, and he stationed cherubim and, a fl- and that flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way back to the tree of life. So cherubim, you might not know this, are warrior angels. They're fearsome. They're not some cuddly, chubby little thing in a Philadelphia cream cheese ad. And God is the king of angels. Now, why are these angels symbolically placed on the ark? Well, well, we know that the ark was considered the literal footstool of God on earth. Like a throne, God is enthroned on earth between the angels. And the curtain that closed off the space from the outside, later we find out, is embroidered with the image of angels. Now, the ark of the covenant has two functions for human beings and God. Beyond this being the encounter place, the throne of God on earth. First, let's ask, what was the ark? Well, what was in the ark? Well, what was in the ark was the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments. These were the literal reminders of the covenant, the agreement, the wedding vows between God and his people. Now, just above the Ten Commandments is the other reason why this box existed. Between the angels on the top of this box is something called the atonement cover. It also had another name, the mercy seat. Unlike the rest of this box, this top portion was made of pure gold. And this is the place. This is the throne room of God. And this is the throne of God. And on this mercy seat or atonement cover, this is where sin was dealt with and removed. This is where reconciliation and atonement take place. This is where sinful, broken human people actually became friends with God, allies of God, family with God, not just distant enemies. This is where hostility was removed. On the mercy seat is where the invisible presence of God was on earth. And this once a year is where the blood was placed to sprinkle and to deal with sin by the high priest. This is what theologians call the axis mundi, where heaven and earth kiss or touch. Now, this isn't a place you can just walk into. We need to recover this a little bit. Yes, God is love. And yes, God is close. He's imminent and he's our friend. But he's God and he's holy too. Love and holiness are his grounding. God is other. And when you hear the phrase, God is holy, let me work this out. Holy means two things, separate and without sin. Separate, not of creation, other, and without sin. There's no darkness in him. So here's the point. When you walk into the presence of a holy God who is pure holiness and light, and you've got sin in your life, you die. The wages of sin, what? Is death. We even see this in the time of David. The ark is being back, moved back to Israel in this really difficult moment. And in 2 Samuel 6, 5, it says, David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God. Big worship party, dancing. And they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, or Nikon. And Uzziah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzziah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, just so you catch this, Uzziah was a follower of God. He was in right relationship with God. He was part of God's covenantal people. He's at a worship event. He's just trying to help out, and God struck him down. Why? Because God is holy, and when sin enters into that environment without permission, you die. 
That, that is why there was a curtain cutting the people off from this space, this place, and this person. The curtain is the barrier. There's a physical barrier between God and all people. The veil, which screened what we call the inner place, the holy of holies, was the boundary between heaven and earth, sin and holiness. Later we know that this temple, this curtain, was much larger than it was in the tabernacle. By the time we get to the temple, which replaces the tabernacle, we read this in 2 Chronicles 3.14. He made the curtain of blue and purple and crimson yard and fine linen with cherubim worked into it. By the time of Jesus, Jewish literature reveals so much more about this veil. At the time of Jesus, it's 60 feet long, 30 uh, feet wide, and it was so thick, it was the thickness of the palm of your hand. Literally, the rug was this thick. It was made up of 72 squares, which were joined together. It was so heavy, it took 300 priests to clean it and literally put it up. Now, why all this? Because you can't just walk into God's presence without covering and help. Why? Because we're sinful. Some of you are going, oh, John, this is such a history lesson. I know there's a lot of historic facts here, but I'm asking, I'm begging you, keep with me because all of this will matter to what God's trying to do today at the end. So that's the Holy of Holies. You've got the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. You've got this curtain. Then we walk into this inner area just outside. It says, bring in the table, set out what belongs on it, verse 4, then bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. Now this table was also made of wood and gold. And, and what was placed on the table? Well, one of the things that was placed there was something called the bread of presence or the showbread. There were 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel baked every day and placed there in the morning and eaten by the priests by night. It represented two things, an ongoing offering to God. But more than that, this is where we get our idea of daily bread from, just like manna. God provides daily bread. Now, beside or adjacent to the table was this thing called the lamp. Now, this lamp is not what you're thinking of, this little lamp that you buy at Ikea. No, no. This is a lamp made of solid gold. It's five or six feet high. So, so basically, six feet high, it's just basically my height. And it artistically looks like a tree. It's a large candelabra. Now, here's the wild thing you might not know. It was built to look like an olive tree, but on top of it, it had almond flowers. So you go to olives and almonds. It had seven flower-cupped uh, holders on the top for the olive oil. Now, why all of this? Well, number one, it was a reminder of the tree of life in Eden. But it had four meanings for God's people. First of all, Israel was called an olive tree. So this was a reminder that God was saying, the Israelites, the Jewish people, you're my people. Number two, Moses' staff that split the Red Sea and brought the plagues and also water from rock is actually made from almond wood. So this is a reminder that God is their deliverer. So you're my people and I'm your deliverer. Now the seven lights on top of this candelabra represent the glory of God and the perfection of God because seven equals perfection. So God is perfect and he's light. But beyond that, the fourth meaning is so intriguing. That light also represents God's heart, not just for the Jewish people, but for all people. See, God's heart is for all nations, all people groups, because they represent 
something that God is up to. It says later in Isaiah 63, nations will come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your dawn. In other words, God is into bringing everyone back home. Okay, so far, we've got the ark and we've got the curtain. We've got the table, we've got the lamp. But then there's more, verse five. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the ark of the testimony and put the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. Now, this little altar of incense was about three feet high, and this is where incense was burned before God. Now, what's all that about? Well, first, incense represents in the Bible prayer ascending to God. It's symbolic. You can read about this in the book of Revelation, but even in Psalm 141 too, may my prayers be set before you like incense. But second, again, God is perfect. God is other. God is so holy that this provided another covering for the priest beyond the curtain and when he went in. We read about this on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, 12. The high priest is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He's put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so he will not die. (laughs) So this incense is burned day and night, just like the call to prayer to be consistent or without ceasing. And once a year when the high priest would go in to deal with the sin of the nation and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, the atonement cover, he'd also move from the one barrier, the curtain, inside, but then provided another barrier through incense so he could not fully, fully be in the full presence of God. Now, that's the inside and the very inside, and now we go to the outside of this structure, this area. It says, place the altar of burnt offerings in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Set up the courtyard around it and put curtains at the entrance to the courtyard. All right. Now, there's a large altar, and this is where all the animal sacrifices would be slaughtered and then burned to deal with sin, to give thanks to God, to love him for his love. And then there's this basin. And this was for symbolic Ritual cleaning. We read about this in Exodus 30, 19. Aaron, who's the priest, and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter, notice this, the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting offerings made to the Lord by fire, they shall wash their hands and feet so they shall not die. Now, the last command... Uh, around this tabernacle is found in verse 9. God says to Moses, take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it and all its furnishings and it will be holy. Then anoint the altar of burnt offerings, all the utensils, consecrate the altar. It will be most holy. Anoint the basin, its stand, consecrate them. Now this anointing oil was made up of myrrh and cinnamon and cane and cassin and olive oil. Now, Why in the world are they putting oil over all this stuff? Well, it's connected to that word consecration, which means to be set apart or holy without sin. Oil is the sign of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And this place needed to be anointed, set apart, made holy. Why? Because God is what? Holy. Now, 
We're gonna pause there and I'm gonna expand this out. Number one, this is not some random project. These are not some people inventing some artistic sort of idea in their head trying to reach out to God. God instructed this. And we find out way later, thousands of years later, in the book of Hebrews, what's really going on. Hebrews 8.5, they served at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what's actually in heaven. That is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So this physical copy is actually a representation of what literally is happening in the heavenlies. Now, after all this was done, Moses did all this work, they did all the anointing, all the stuff. What happens next is amazing. The cloud moves from in front of the people over and into the tabernacle. This happens in verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God seals the tent. God gives approval to the tent. God completes the work by descending on it. The same cloud and pillar of fire that led them, protected them at the Red Sea, the real physical presence of God will continue to lead them and protect them. Now, I've preached this a hundred times. Forgive me, let me do it again. This is called the Shekinah glory of God. God who's omnipresent, who's holy, whose other becomes palpable, becomes close, is seen in part. This exact glory and light was given an experience at the giving of the Ten Commandments, here at the dedication of the tabernacle, later when the temple is dedicated by Solomon, same thing. It's the same fire that descended in 1 Kings 18 when Elijah was confronting the Baal prophets. It's the same glory that overwhelmed Isaiah in Ezekiel when they were called to be prophets. It's the same, same brightness that shocked the shepherds at Christmas when the birth of Jesus was announced. It's the same cloud that came down when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah and Peter, James, and John saw Jesus in his glory. It's the same fire that descended in Acts 2 when the church was born with tongues of fire. It's the same glory that Stephen, the first Christian martyr, saw around Jesus when he said, I see Jesus sitting at the right hand. It's the same overwhelming presence that knocked Saul down and made him Paul. This is the glory of God. Now, one last historic note really matters. Where was the tabernacle placed? Well, I was doing my devotions uh, in Deuteronomy and Numbers over the last few months, and I suddenly found this in the middle of Numbers with all these names and numbers, and most people hardly ever read it. It says in Numbers 2.17, the tent of meeting and the camp of the Levites, the priests, will be set out in the middle of the camps. So God, watch this, is in the middle of his people, at the center of his people. And when God told Moses it was time to move, then the people would move and the glory would move. You read about this in Numbers 10, 17. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, and that's in the center of God's people, the Israelites would what? Set out. Whenever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Sometimes the cloud stayed for morning to evening. And when it lifted in the morning, they set out. Whether by day or night, whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether the cloud, I love this, stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. The portability 
of this whole idea and structure shows the openness of God's people to move when God says move, and yet they know their security and hope is in God's presence that's in the middle of them always. Let me say that again. The portability shows the openness of God's people to move when he says, but their security and hope is that God is among them in the middle of them. Now, I want you to watch this. I want you to see how much it takes to encounter God himself. Because he's loving, but he's holy. You got to get washed and you got to sacrifice on the outside. Then you need bread, then light, then incense, and then you need the mercy seat and blood on top of it. Do you notice how much work it takes to access his presence, to be near God, to hear God? So much, too much. It's so dangerous. Not because God's a thug, but because literally sin dies in his presence. See, again, our culture only talks about God as love, but they've forgotten that God is holy. Sin dies in the presence. The image is like this. If you're in a dark room and you light a candle or turn on the lights, darkness fades, disappears, is destroyed. That's the same thing. That's why, again, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. This is why God said in Eden, if you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. And this is why it is amazing that God, who is holy, who is also love, decided within himself that Jesus would come. See, the story of Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and gives us the access we don't deserve. It all starts at Christmas, by the way. What did Gabriel say to Mary? Luke 135, the Holy Spirit will be upon you, will overshadow you. This delicate language rules out any crude form of weird mating between God and this little, this, this young teenage girl. The Holy Spirit hovered, overshadowed the tabernacle, and now God overshadows Mary. And watch this. And God comes to reside within Mary. Mary, have you thought about this? Is the very first prototype of a Christian that the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah glory, would bring Jesus to live within us. And not just that. Think about Jesus himself. Matthew 1.23, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, which they will call Emmanuel, which means God is what? With us, in the middle of us. Oh, and then in the book of John, John 1.14, the word Jesus uh, took on flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now, here's what's, again, mind-blowing. Some of you know this. The word dwelling in the original language, it's tabernacle. It literally reads, Jesus pitched his tent among us. And as he pitches his tent among us, we have seen his glory, the same glory that was at the tabernacle. But it's not just his name or how his life began here on earth, but it's his life, his claims, and his actions. When Jesus started his ministry, John the Baptist's cousin, what did he say in John 1.29? Look. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, there are multiple references to this. Abraham and Isaac, there's a part there. Then, of course, there's the story at Passover. Do you remember this? Where Pharaoh would not let God's people go, and there were nine plagues, and he would not do it. So the last one is when the angel of death came across Egypt, and all the firstborn died. But God said, you take a perfect little lamb and you sacrifice it and you place the blood over the doorposts of your home. And when the angel of death comes, he will what? Pass over because he will see the blood. There's the reference. But then by the time we get to the tabernacle a year later, every morning and every evening on that made altar on the outside, they are sacrificing a lamb 
to deal with sin. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is our daily sacrifice. Jesus is our replacement. He's our forever sacrifice. He's the one who deals with our guilt and sin. But there's even more. It's, it's wild and offensive, but true and beautiful if you believe it. In John 6, 35, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the showbread. And not only that, in, in John 8, 12, he actually declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And if you do your research, he said this the day after the festival of lights under the new form of the candelabra. He said, I'm the fulfillment of that olive tree with the almond buds, me. Here's the amazing thing. Jesus, because of who he is and what he's done and what he continues to do, allows us access to a holy God like that. When Jesus died, we celebrated this a few weeks ago on Good Friday. What happened to the curtain that cut people off from the presence of a holy God? It says in Matthew 27, 51, at the moment of his death, the curtain in the temple was torn into from top to bottom. Remember, it's the, this thick, ripped in half. That is why before Jesus died and rose from the dead, he claimed he alone could give us access to God in the fullest extent. He's the one who washes us and cleans us. He's our sacrifice. He's our light. He's our bread. He prays for us. So that means he's our incense. He's our priest. He's our curtain. He's our mercy seat. That's why he said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No religious leader, no philosophic understanding, no person on earth could accomplish all that needs to be done except Jesus. And not only that, amazingly, we'll talk about this more next week, Jesus is actually our high priest. And he allows us access into the real Holy of Holies. It says this in Hebrews 9, verse 1. Jesus went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not part of this creation. And he did not enter by the means of the blood of goats or, or calves. He entered by the most holy place once for all by his own blood having obtained eternal redemption, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial, ceremonially unclean, sanctified them, but only outwardly. How much more than, listen Christian, how much more than, listen seeker, will the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from every act that lead to death so we may serve the living God. This is amazing. What, what Jesus has done for us should lead us to praise and gratitude and worship because we realize there really was no way back to a perfect holy God. And yet Jesus does it all for us. Now, the question, the question, the question. Why did the Holy Spirit ask us as a church to focus on this conversation in this moment? Why? Well, number one, again, so many people checking out Jesus virtually and in relationship with others in our church. Some of you are even taking Alpha right now. What does this all say to you? Well, number one, the invitation by God who is holy is to acknowledge your sin. Yes, you, I, we have done things that have broken God's law. We have sinned against ourselves, others, and God. God is holy. The wages of sin is death. The verse keeps going, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let God set up in your life 
Let him pitch his tent in you. You never need to be alone. Jesus will make you holy. He'll give you a clean slate. He'll forgive you of all the stuff you've done. And even as you struggle after you meet him, he'll keep forgiving you. You will become the place where God literally dwells. You will be saved. You will be, as Jesus called it, born again. You will turn from a hollow life, which is either deeply religious or not religious, and you will experience light and life and encounter and presence. God will become your center through Jesus, and God will become your friend and your father and your master and your Lord, and he'll lead your life better than any other person or you could. All you must do is turn to Jesus and say, be my high priest, be the lamb of God for me, be my bread, be my light, forgive me of my sin. Come, let me access the tabernacle in the fullest sense. Just cry out to his mercy. Listen, there's an old phrase, an old prayer in the church. Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. Cry that out today and you will have access. You can't even imagine. Uh, Many of us listening, we are followers of Jesus. God has already pitched his tent in our life. And what is God trying to say to us? And again, I know as I'm preaching this, so many people are tired. So many of us are frustrated. So many, another lockdown. It just, oh, we're just so done. Why did God give us this whole conversation about tabernacle? You're not alone. We've learned so many valuable lessons in the last year. And so much has been exposed actually in us. But let me remind you as a Christian Our worship should not be taken for granted, nor should our access. We actually have access to the throne room of heaven by our brother and our high priest, Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter where you are, whether you're in a living room by yourself or with a spouse or kids are going crazy all around you right now, or you're in a kitchen or you're listening to this in a car, no matter where you live, you don't need to be near a physical tabernacle walking with a certain group. If you have accepted Jesus Christ, you have access to the place where the world was created from. You have access to the place where God who is sovereign is in control. Because of this, you are not alone. When Jesus said his last words, I will never leave you or forsake you, this is what he meant. We have access by the eternal spirit through Jesus to the Father at any single time. You are not alone in this COVID moment. You are not alone in this lockdown. You are not alone. As things are still so dead, you are not alone. And this is the distinguishing mark between you and every non-Christian on earth. You are never alone, even when you're alone, because Jesus has done so much for you. We need to keep holding on to this, to keep going. We have access to the presence of God. Now, I just want to end with this. I was at Connect Group on Saturday night, and we were all just talking about all the frustrations and struggles and family and life and all sorts of things. And I know, again, we're all so tired, and thinking about the future almost feels futile or too much because we're just trying to deal with today. But I, I just need to end with this. The reason why God also brought us to the tabernacle, not only to remind us of the great work of Jesus, not only to remind us about access, he also brought us to this moment to continue to prepare us for what is coming. God is taking this whole church on the next leg of the journey towards accomplishing his God-given, his, our God-given task, his assignment to us. And if there's something, and I'll use the word prophetically, We need to start embedding in us now as a church. As we are coming sort of near the end of the long middle and then coming out of this moment, it is this. We as a local church are going to have to be agile and portable 
as we keep moving under the command of God. The greatest threat to portability is comfort. (laughs) But I like it the way it is. And many, many of us, I know exactly what's going on. Many of us are like, I just can't wait to get out of COVID and we're just going to do this thing and we're, gonna, we're just going to reestablish what was at Sanctus. Well, well, yes and no. Just before COVID, we had four sites, right? I'm trying to work that out. And, and are we going to reestablish them physically? Yes. Even the survey we just said, 90% of us are planning on coming back. Yes, of course we're going to do that. The amazing gift over the last year is what I'm doing right now. We have been able to launch a fifth site that's given us a global footprint. It's an incredible gift. It's going to allow us to reach so many more people. So yes, that's true. But our future is not done. God's promises and commands were given before COVID. Are we still called beyond site five to plant six more sites? Yes, we've been even told geographically the areas we must go. So yes, we're going to do things virtually and and digitally and personally. And we're going to be asked to go to places we can't even think about. And so what I'm just preparing the church for is as we reestablish, we have to be prepared like the people of God When the Spirit says, now go next to this place, we are ready. Portability over comfort and portability as worship. This digital thing, we're going to keep working. Portability. We have such an incredible opportunity. We are not going to limp out of COVID. We are going to roar out of COVID because God's promises are true. He has prepared this church. He has sovereignly given promises to this church. And we must just be prepared to be portable as he commands it. Where we go next, what we build next, we just say, yes, Lord, because we do want the 10,000 to come to faith in Jesus Christ, right? So let's just end by praying three things. Let's just thank God for Jesus. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to reveal his presence among us and to make us agile and portable as we keep going. Uh, One, thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he did all the work for us so we have access at any time. We are thankful, thankful, thankful. Number two, so many of us just need to know you're in the room with us today, Jesus. So many of us need to know we have access. So would you remind our church, young and old, we have access, we're not alone. Thanks for the lessons this year too, that we've realized that worship can happen anywhere. It might not be ideal or what we want, but we do have access. And forgive us, God, for taking granted for what we had, but also, Lord, forgive us for writing off what we have as fake or wrong. Thank you that you're actually teaching us what much of the global church has experienced for a long time. But lastly, we pray and we commit as a church that we will go where you tell us to go. As we reestablish and prepare to move out at the same time, help us to be agile and portable. And we continue to pray for stability in the center, yes, but not comfort for the sake of comfort alone. Prepare this church as we move forward, we ask in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. 